0: we're going to be thinking about a conversation that God had with Moses uh, at the burning bush. But in terms of a a sort of introduction, if you like, in terms of a a theme that we're going to be thinking about, we're thinking today about the theme of control. Control. Um, I wonder if you were to give yourself a mark from one to ten on how much you feel the need to being control. Where 10 is that you always need, in every situation, to be on top of it all. And where one is that you're never happier than everything being utter chaos. What's your score? What would you give yourself? What would you give members of your family? I suspect that probably we give them a, a very extreme mark either one or ten. But at different levels, I reckon we all like to have some control over things. Whether it's control over our diaries, control over what we're going to eat this evening, control over the car when you're driving or when you're sat in the back seat. Some people even get twitchy if they haven't got control over the remote for the TV can see some smiles around the face around the place some nodding you see all of us at some level want to be in control maybe you're a planner maybe every contingency is catered for some people might describe you as a control freak but you know even the people who are the most adventurous Seemingly the most spontaneous, generally do it within the bounds of control. When Bear Grylls goes off to the jungle to survive, he does it with extensive knowledge, doesn't he? As to what he can eat, what's safe, what's not safe, where he should go. He takes with him equipment that he knows he's going to need. He manages the situation, so at all times he is in control. He's got it all planned, even though we would be totally out of our depth, because the reality is that when we're out of control, we're disoriented, we're bewildered, we're threatened. And so even though I don't really like the phrase, aren't we all control freaks to some extent? Well... We like to control our situations around us. And even if you're sitting there thinking, no, Paul, you've got me completely wrong. I'm not like that. Well, you wouldn't jump into a car with a drunk driver, would you? You're not in control there. We want to be in control. Control is about calling the shots, being in charge, deciding the future. And when we realise that things are out of control, then we fear I think that's why we tend to actually avoid those big things that we can't control. Those challenges in life, those threats. The things that are so big, they're just too big for us. People frequently tell me that I'm hitting middle age. I, I know I couldn't believe it either. But, uh, but the reality is, I have moments where I contemplate the future. In my mind, I'm 25, but my body is that of a 45-year-old. I fear getting older. I fear declining. So what do I do? I go running. I try to get fit. Do you know I've got an app on my phone that tells me I've got a fitness age of 38? (laughs) How good's that? You see, I think I'm taking control But the reality is that I'm avoiding thinking about the inevitable ageing of my body, that uncontrollable process. I focus on what I can control to avoid thinking about what I can't control. I think that actually gives us a bit of an insight into modern society and how we relate to God as well. You see, some people just ignore God. Because actually, once you start reckoning with the idea of God and somebody who's so big and somebody who's powerful, then actually you realize that you're not in control of Him either. You realize that something else or somebody else is in control. We realize just how small we are. And the bigger your sense of God, the smaller you realize you are, the more uncomfortable. That is, which is why I think in our modern society, well, we either ignore God or we try and make him smaller so we feel bigger. We'll come back to that kind of idea uh, later on, but what I want us to, to kind of focus on is this idea of control. And the reality is this. Moses in our reading. Moses, the person we've been reading about, is no different to us. We've been following his story for a few months now, and what we've seen already is that he likes to be in control. Let's recap uh, this story a little bit. If you've got your Bible with me, uh, would you open it please to, uh, to chapter 3 of Exodus. I think it's on page uh, 60 or 61 of your, uh, of your Bibles. I've got a different one here, so if somebody could tell me which page it's on. Exodus chapter 3, verse 9, we're looking at. 59. Brilliant, thank you. Page 59, Exodus chapter 3, verse 9 and 10. And God says to Moses this, The cry of the Israelites has reached me. I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them, so now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites or Hebrews, out of Egypt. You see, God's got a job for Moses, and that job is to rescue his oppressed people. But if you've actually been with us soon earlier than that, you'll know in the story that Moses has already tried to do this himself. Just flick back a page, and you'll find chapter two, verse eleven. Moses saw an Egyptian oppressing a Hebrew exactly the same situation didn't he and he didn't like what he saw so he went all james bond and tried to sort it all out himself he took control and tried to do his own little mini rescue he killed the egyptian and he buried him so that nobody could see but taking control didn't work out for moses The following day, he tried to take control of a similar situation where two Hebrews were fighting. He tried to break them up, and they revealed that he was known to be a murderer. Moses was afraid. Suddenly, he was out of control. The situation was beyond him, and Pharaoh, who was the king of Egypt, well, he wanted to kill Moses. So Moses ran away to a foreign country, to Midian. And he set up there a comfortable life for himself. He got married. He had land and flocks. We know that he had children. Suddenly things were comfortable again. He was in control. He was safe. And then what happens? 40 years later, we find that he's out tending his flocks in chapter 3, verse 1. And then God... Breaks into that world of comfort, that world of control, and has a conversation with him. And saying, God says, yes, I've seen the oppression of the Hebrews as well. And you know you failed in the past to be a rescuer. Well, now I want you to go back and be a rescuer again. But this time you're going to be my rescuer. Rescue my people. And so where's the control now? God is sending Moses back. God is sending Moses. God is calling the shots. And so the question is this, is Moses going to do what God tells him to or not? We just said that Moses had tried to rescue one Hebrew in the past and it had ended in failure. Now God was telling him that he would rescue a whole nation. But that's going to mean danger that could mean death the pharaoh there wants to kill him and last week when elliot was uh, was speaking we saw that that moses isn't really a fan of this idea <laughs> he doesn't like it so chapter 3 verse 11 he says well who am i that i should go back to pharaoh and, and then chapter 4 verse 1 he says well what if they don't believe me and in our reading this week we can see that moses comes up with another objection doesn't he in chapter 4 verse 10 pardon your servant lord i'm i'm not very eloquent i'm slow of speech and tongue now just everything what do you think moses is trying to do in this why does he keep on coming up with these objections why all the complaints Well, I think what he's trying to do is he's actually trying to take control of the situation and the conversation himself. He keeps on objecting, saying, I'm not the right person for this job. He's kind of saying, God, you know what you should do? You should take my advice. There are better people out there. I'm not special. There's a good chance they're not going to believe me. I'm not that great at speaking. You'll find somebody who's much better qualified than I am. Now, Now, off you go, God. You'd be better off with somebody else. Do you know, I'm only really thinking of you, actually. Your plans. What's best for your plans? What's he doing? Well, Moses is manipulating the conversation. And he's actually putting God on the back foot. So so Moses comes up with an objection, and, and then God has to answer it every time. But God proves that he can't be controlled And this, if you like, is our first point. The God we can't control rescues us. I want us to see in this conversation just how God demonstrates that Moses can't take control here. Moses can't control him. Because at every stage of this conversation, God has an answer. Chapter 3, verse 11. Moses says, who am I to do this? And God says, I'll be with you. And then chapter four, verse one, Moses says, What if they don't believe me? And God says, I'll give you signs for them. They'll believe the signs. And then God gives him two miraculous signs to show. And then finally, Moses says, This pardon your servant, Lord. I've never been eloquent, I'm slow of speech and tongue. And God says, Well, it's okay. It's okay. I gave you a tongue. <laughs> I made you. I, I, I made everybody. I made their ears. I can determine whether people hear or not, don't worry. Do you know, I reckon this sounds just like the kind of conversation that a lot of parents have with their kids. So I came up with this sort of mocked up idea of what the conversation might be. Parent, eat your greens. They're cold. Don't worry. We'll put them in the microwave. Oh, but they're stringy. That's okay. We can cut them up into small pieces. You don't have to worry about the strings then. I'm full. You can't be full. You've barely eaten anything. And then it comes to the final objection. I don't want to eat them. And with this final objection, what you get is that clash as to who's really in control because you see as you go through the process of like this you gradually get under the skin of what the real issue is because every answer and every objection is a different excuse until they're all exhausted and you get to the bottom which is the real reason the real reason And it's left with those objections and with that parent thinking, well, who's going to back down? Is the parent going to give in and say, well, okay, you're not going to eat your greens. And so then the child feels like they've won. But will the parent dig their heels in, maintaining control and say, no, you will eat your greens? Well, what happens in that situation is, Well, the parent says, I'm calling the shots here and you will do exactly what I say. Do you know, I know of a parent that did exactly this and it wasn't me, hasten to add. Uh, It's not one of those sort of sermon or preacher things where you talk about a hypothetical person, it's actually you. It wasn't me in this situation, but I know of one parent who said that their child couldn't eat anything until they finished their greens. Their child didn't eat for 24 hours. That is where two clash, two stubborn people clash and neither is prepared to back down because they both want control of the situation. They both want to be calling the shots. But you know what? I'm no better. I'm no better because I know deep down that if I don't want to do something that somebody wants me to do, that I won't tell them outright, no, I don't want to do it. I'll make loads of excuses. Because I'll make the excuses because I want to appear reasonable. I want to appear as if I'm not telling them what they should do. I'm just saying, well, no, actually, uh, uh, I, I've got quite a busy week. Or, well, actually, yeah, I, I, I'm not that good. Probably pick somebody else. All of those things often are excuses to make things seem reasonable. And Moses found exactly the same thing, didn't he? He finds himself getting to the end of all his objections. And in verse 13, he says very politely, chapter 4, verse 13, he says this. Pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. The bottom line is that he doesn't want to go to rescue the people because he prefers the safety and security of Midian, his new life. He doesn't want to go back into the danger zone. He'd like to stay secure himself while thousands of others suffered because he doesn't want to go to a place where he's not in control anymore. So if you like to summarize this, God wants Moses to go and save his people. Moses doesn't want to, so he makes excuses. He wants God to go away and bother somebody else. And in the end, a clash of control as to whose opinion wins. Would Moses do what God wants, or would God do what Moses wants? I think, just sort of stepping back a little bit from this, And thinking about the process that Moses goes through in here is actually quite insightful again in how people relate to God or even the idea of God. Last week, Elliot asked us, didn't he, about um, that question of what more evidence do you want? Uh, I've often chatted with people who aren't Christians and we've talked about the idea of God. We've talked about following God and the conversation follows the similar pattern what happens is you get lots of questions but what about oh i don't know what about what about bad things when when they think when bad things happen in the world how do you believe in a god then and and you get lots and lots of objections and lots of things which sound and seem on the face of it to be really quite reasonable questions But when you start giving answers to those questions what you actually discover is that those questions are not there because they're genuine they're there because they're a reasonable way of saying i don't want somebody who's going to be in control of me the reality is not that people don't understand god or the idea of god it's the reality that people don't want god People prefer a life without God because, as I said at the start, the more we believe in a God who is big, the more we realise that we are small. The more we realise that God is in control, the more we realise we're not in control. So those objections, those conversations are less questions of the head and more actually a question of the heart. People in the world have enough evidence to know God. The reality is that Bottom line, most people don't want to know God because he threatens their control. So that, that question you see of, the, of God and his existence is often one because of a battle of wills. Those objections are not about evidence or a lack of evidence. The reality is that it's about what you want to be true. And I just want a challenge, a bit of a challenge here. Are you, if you're thinking about Christian things, and you might have lots of questions, I want you to be honest with yourself. Ask yourself the questions, are my questions an objection like, my greens are too stringy? Because bottom line, you don't want there to be a God. Or is it actually that as God answers those questions, you're open to trusting him and believing in him? honest with yourselves are they just a barrier because the idea of a God who is in control actually threatens you the other way I think that people avoid God these days is actually to pretend that God is smaller they limit him Uh, they they might talk about God being well yeah God of works or a God of of love but only those things they limit him they make him predictable You you see, a God of works, if you believe in... Often people talk about, God, he's a God of works. He's like school behaviour policy. If you do good, you get good in return. You see, he's controllable. You know how to react to him. You do good, you get good back. Others will say, no, no, God's not like that. God's a God of love. He loves everybody unconditionally. No matter what you do, he'll accept everybody. But what I want us to notice is how the God... Of Moses acts have a look at verse 14 Moses has just said to God can't someone else go please verse 14 the Lord's anger burned again against Moses wow that's really uncomfortable isn't it the Lord's anger burned against Moses but you might say, well, that's what we'd expect from a God of works. Moses has been disobedient. He wasn't trusting God. And a God who, who judges on the basis of works of what we do would be angry, of course. Of course, that's what Moses deserves. This is what a God of justice does. And so, in some respects, that God is predictable, he's limited. If this is how he acts, he just you get you what you do do bad you get bad you get punished moses wanted to control god he deserved god's anger he deserved god's wrath but aren't we the same we've always wanted to act like god in his world god's anger burns against us and a god of works would just say yes you are punished you deserve punishment you see the anger of god's uh, the language of god's anger burning just shows how angry he really is but do you know what's weird about this passage what's weird about this passage is that god is angry that his anger burns and yet moses doesn't experience it does he what happens next is that, well, that anger lingers unresolved because God is a God of love. He shows mercy to Moses. He continues the conversation, doesn't he? He spares him and remarkably, he doesn't even withdraw the job offer. You see, that's where the other extreme of God comes in. And you might say, well, of course, I'd expect that from a God of love. Because a God of love accepts everybody. There's no demands on him. There's no demands of him. Yeah, Moses was pretty out of order, but God's job is just to forgive and love everybody unconditionally. But actually, doesn't that also constrain God and make him small? Because it says God can't really show justice. It says he's got to show love. So it doesn't matter what I do. No, demand's on me. You see, if we have a God of justice without a God of love, or a God of love without a God of justice, we have a very small, one-dimensional God whom we can control. You see, those who believe in a God of works are outraged when he shows mercy. Those who believe in a God of love are dumbfounded at a God who could ever get angry And yet the God of Moses, the God of the Bible, does both. He holds both justice and mercy together, two extremes. You can't control this God. He's too big, too complex. He can be two contradictory things at the same time. And the bigger we realise God is, the smaller we realise we are. Now, if you're following on the uh, transcript, I'm missing out a section now. Uh, And I'm going to go to the best example of this. These two contradictory things, love and justice. The best example of this is at the cross of Jesus. The cross brings together so many things that we can't reconcile in our own minds. It's God's wisdom and human foolishness it's power and weakness, it's death and life, it's wrath and mercy, it's the worst day in human history because humanity murders its creator and it's the greatest day of history because it's the day when God rescues humanity and we could never get our heads around those things if God hadn't explained it to us so clearly in the Bible. God's ways are so much greater than our ways We may never understand, but why would we want to limit such an amazing God by expecting him to answer to us? The cross is God's rescue of humanity from sin and death. And did you notice how our reading from earlier on, how Moses' inadequacy as a human saviour points us to Jesus' perfection as God's saviour? What did Moses say to God? Verse 13, he said, Please, can't you send someone else? And God's answer to that is found in Luke 22. Uh, turn it, um, we had it read it to us earlier on. You don't need to turn there. Luke chapter 22. Jesus faces up to a similar moment where he's going to save his people. He goes into the garden of Gethsemane to pray, to talk to God. And he knows that what that will mean for him is certain death. He's in anguish over it. But what does Jesus say to God? He says, Not my will, but yours. Jesus doesn't take control. He says, God, you're in control and I will trust you. Moses' inadequacy points to Jesus' perfection. We sing these words, don't we? For me, it was in the garden. He said, not my will, but thine. He had no tears for his own grief, but sweat drops of blood for mine. Jesus was the perfect saviour who didn't take control and this is what Paul says in Romans 5 verses 8 and 9 about what goes on at the cross God demonstrates his love for us in this while we were still sinners Christ died for us since we have now been justified by his blood how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him that wrath God's anger that burned against Moses, that same anger that we deserve for taking control and wanting to live in God's world as if we're in control, what did God do with it? He directed it at Jesus. At the cross, God's anger burned not on Moses, not on me, not on you, on Jesus, even though he didn't deserve it, so that God's mercy could be poured out on all of us. Moses says, can't someone else do it? And God says, I'll do it. But that was always the plan. The truth was always that God would be the rescuer. Chapter 3, verse 8, God says, I've come down to rescue them. Chapter 3, verse 16, I have promised to bingry up out of your misery. Chapter 3, verse 20, I will stretch out my hand to strike the Egyptians. God would always rescue his people from Egypt, but that would point us towards the greatest rescue through his obedient son of Jesus at the cross. And so I guess the question that we have is, would you rather act as if you're in control and take God's wrath for yourself? Or would you rather say, actually, God, you're in control. Thank you that Jesus took the wrath that I deserve. Moses' role wouldn't actually be in the end to save. But his role would be to point towards God as the rescuer. And that brings us to our second and final point. Did you notice how much of the conversation that we read earlier on is about speaking I want us to see how God reassures those who feel inadequate to speak for him. Verse 11 of chapter 4, he says this, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who made them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? And so then what he says is, Now, therefore, go. Therefore, go. I will be with your mouth and give you words to speak. And he also says in verse 14, and and there's Aaron, your brother. I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and I will teach you what to do. And again, there are parallels with the New Testament. In Matthew 28, verse 19, Jesus says this. Now, therefore, go. Same words. And make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Moses' role was to speak for God the rescuer, to point to God the rescuer. And his objection was that he wasn't very eloquent. You see, if we're to speak for God the rescuer, then maybe you feel really lacking in eloquence sometimes maybe you don't feel good enough to speak for God maybe you think people aren't going to listen we might be worried that we just don't know enough we might be tempted to even turn around to God and say can't someone else do it but it's not about us personally it's not about us individually And so as we briefly explore this point at the end, I just wanted to point out two reassurances that God gives to Moses. The first thing, they both amount to the same thing, actually, which is that you're not on your own. The first thing is this. You've got Aaron. You've got Aaron. When Jesus sends out his disciples at the end of Matthew's gospel, he sends them together. He says, go plural. He talks all of them. Now go. I think there's something really significant in this. We often feel isolated with friends or colleagues and we want to talk to them about Jesus. But God gives us one another so that those who are on the outside who don't yet know God can actually see how we relate to each other. They can see the difference that knowing God makes to us. You might feel tongue-tied at times, you might not know what to say, but sometimes God uses other people in those situations. But maybe you think, but I'm the only Christian that I'm in the workplace with. I'm the only one there. Maybe think about how you can introduce people to meet your Christian friends, your brothers and sisters, invite them to a wreath making or, or think about some of these Christmas events. Bring them along to meet others who can talk about Jesus to them. Help them to see the difference that God makes to us. Invite them to some of these Christmas parties, to the carol services. Maybe invite them to Christian Union at school, whatever it may be, so that they can hear from others as well about the goodness of God because there's reassurance in doing, going on mission together. But the emphasis isn't on us, nor even us as friends together. God points to the fact that he goes with us. He is the one with the ability to help us speak to others so that they hear. God promises to give words to Moses. He says, I will help both of you to speak. I will teach you what to do. He says, but take this staff in your hands that you can perform signs with it. You see, God gives them everything they need and he goes with them. Jesus tells us, his followers, to teach others what he taught us. So if you feel inadequate, then good. (laughs) Then good. Because God uses inadequate people with a powerful message. Listen to these words, 1 Corinthians 1.18. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5 says this, When I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power people won't ever listen to you about god and be convinced because you're eloquent they will only ever listen to you because god is using you so if you feel inadequate god can use you <laughs> what does god say to moses at the end he says this take this staff in your hand so that you can perform signs with you with it God basically says, what have you got in your hands? That's enough. I can use that. He says to us, what have you got in your mouth? He says, that's enough. I can use that. He says to us, what words do you have to speak? And he says, that's enough. I can use that. Because God's given them to us. Moses felt inadequate to save God's people, and he was right. We can't save ourselves, but God is the rescuer. Moses felt inadequate to speak about God's rescue, and he was right. But God gives us one another, and will go with us and use us. So, as we finish, can you just see why trying to take control over God is just really foolish? (laughs) If we could control God, then God is not God, quite frankly. If I can control God, then I am God. But the wonderful thing is that our God is so big and we are so small that we don't need to control him. Instead, actually, we've got a privilege of trusting him. Even when we find it hard, even when we don't understand, even when obedience means pain, even when we fear even when everything inside us says this is out of control and I cannot cope, God is with us. The God we can't control goes with us. The God we can't control has rescued us. No matter what, the God who is greater than we can imagine is with us. What greater reason do we have to worship him and to trust him? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are sorry. We're sorry that deep down we've wanted to take control. We've feared living in a world where things are out of our control. We're sorry that we want to minimise you. And yet we thank you so much for the reality that you are bigger and greater than we could possibly imagine. Please help us to trust you. Help us to trust you when life is hard. Help us to trust you when it feels like we're being asked to obey in a difficult circumstance. But we pray that by doing that, you would get much glory and we would enjoy the privilege of seeing you at work. And so please, cause us to grow in our faith and to trust you because you are the God who is in control. And we pray it for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. Amen.